Father in heaven, we pray now that your Holy Spirit will be with us, that you will, you will speak to us, that we will hear. There's a word here that is important for us, something to do, really two things to do, help us, that we will be able to receive it. In Jesus' name, amen. Okay, so you know, on, on many of these Sabbaths during this series, we've started, and I've encouraged you to look around you and look to the far sides of the room and things like that, and say those words, these are the people I love. But today, I don't so much want you to look to the far side of the room, I want you to look mostly at the people you came with, the ones that are close to you, the people likely sitting close to you, uh, because... By the time we get to the end, you're going to need to remember that these are the people I love, okay? So I want you to look at the ones you came with, the ones next to you, and I want you to say it with me. Are you ready? These are the people I love. Okay, hang on to that. You're going to need it later. Speaking of the people I love, let me give you a really quick update on Alicia. Uh, She had a post-surgery checkup on Monday. And things went extremely well. Uh, the, uh, in this kind of surgery, the things you're interested in, margins were, were clean, lymph nodes were clear, and her recovery is going very well without any significant complications. So we praise God for that. Amen. So thank you for your love and prayers. It's nice to be over those hurdles, and now we're on the recovery road, not building up to some other beatdown. So that is a nice thing. All right. So I want to jump into a story today. We're going to go right to the text. 2 Samuel chapter 11, verse 1. In the spring, at the time when kings go off to war, David sent Joab out with the king's men and the whole Israelite army. They destroyed the Ammonites and besieged Rabbah. But David remained in Jerusalem. And with these words, so begins one of the more disturbing stories in the Bible. You see, it seems, apparently, that when warrior kings don't go out with the army, they have a tendency to get bored when they stay at home. And boredom makes them easy targets for illicit temptations. It all happened simply enough. David wasn't necessarily looking for trouble. He was just walking on the roof of the palace. There's no crime in that, right? Getting out and walking. I mean, I guess if you're not the king, it might not be best if you were up there. But if you're the king, there's nothing wrong with that. Bored minds need stimulation, right? And oh my, happy serendipity indeed. Stimulation is exactly what David found when he walked on the roof. Now, a word of caution to those who would never go looking for trouble. You're probably one of those people who never goes looking for trouble, right? Yet, sometimes you're more of an opportunist when trouble comes along. Just because you didn't go looking for trouble doesn't mean that trouble won't come looking for you. Have you learned this? And what can seem like a serendipitous opportunity and one you didn't, nothing to set up, or at least you did very little to set it up, the opportunity that came to you innocently, don't be fooled. Just because you didn't plan it doesn't mean it isn't sin. 
You know that, right? There are lots of ways to ruin your life. Not all of them require careful planning. Now, most of you know this story well enough, and in truth, I don't actually want to talk that much about David or Bathsheba or Uriah or Joab. Actually, I want to focus on another guy and what God told him he needed to do. And we'll get to him in a moment, but first we need to be clear on the events of the story that sets up this encounter we're going to consider. So 2 Samuel chapter 11, verse 1, in the spring... At the time when kings go off to war, David sent Joab out with the king's men and the whole Israelite army. They destroyed the Ammonites and besieged Rabbah, but David remained in Jerusalem. One evening, David got up from his bed and walked around on the roof of the palace. From the roof, he saw a woman bathing. The woman was very beautiful, and David sent someone to find out about her. The man said, she is Bathsheba the daughter of Eliam, and the wife of Uriah the Hittite. Okay, so we're going to take a quick break here in the story, and I need full participation here. You know, sometimes I ask you questions, and they're rhetorical, and they're traps, and you know better than to answer them. But this time, no. I need your participation based on what I just read you in the story. How many of you know At this point, at the point where the woman is identified as someone else's wife, how many of you know that this is the exact moment when David's interest in her should have ceased? I want to see your hands. How many of you know as soon as he found out that this was someone else's wife, that should have been enough, right? Now, perhaps we could grant him a short moment of disappointment. Maybe David could have kicked at a stone and and said, oh, man, or whatever it was you said in Hebrew when you were disappointed. (laughs) But at the moment he found out she was someone else's spouse, his pursuit should have ended. I saw your hands. Every one of you who raised your hand from this day forward live the way you know is right. Which means the moment you find out that the person who has caught your eye is the spouse of another, and this applies to you, ladies as well, the moment you find out that moment is the end of your interest and pursuit, period. And you shouldn't even be looking around if you have a spouse already. So, you all raised your hands. You know what is right. And if the people around you are, in fact, the people that you love, then this is one of the hugest points about rightly loving the people you love. To break up a marriage by enticing away someone else's spouse is wrong every time. Every time. And if this is something you have done in the past, even if you are a much better man than he was, or a far more loving wife than she was, regardless, if you have done this in the past, you need to repent before the Lord. And there is a chance I have offended you in the saying of this. 
But if I have, I pray only that you will let the offense illustrate the ultimate point I hope to make today. More on that in a moment, but first we finish what we need from the story. Verse 4, then David sent messengers to get her. She came to him and he slept with her. Now she was purifying herself from her monthly uncleanness. Then she went back home. The woman conceived and sent word to David saying, I am pregnant. Oops. What follows in 2 Samuel 11 is the attempted cover-up. David sends for Uriah, the woman's husband. He's off at the war. He sends with this cover story that says to Joab, send him home with a report about the war. So Uriah comes back with a report, and after he gives the positive report of what's going on, he says, thank you, Uriah, you're a great guy. And I'm going to send you back up there, but before you go, go on home and enjoy being in town and, and just have a nice evening at home. You see, his goal was to create the scenario that would make the pregnancy explainable. But now I want you to think about this for a moment, what David's doing here. He's actually on the brink of denying that the child to be born, a potential heir to the throne, is not his child. How's that going to work out? But here's what keeps it from working. Uriah is too noble. He won't go home. 2 Samuel 11, verse 11, Uriah said to David, the ark and Israel and Judah are staying in tents. And my commander Joab and my Lord's men are camped in the open country. How could I go to my house? to eat and drink and make love to my wife. As surely as you live, I will not do such a thing. Now, if David's paying attention, this is an amazingly stinging rebuke. But when you get caught up in these things, sometimes your hearing isn't very good. And sadly, this amazing nobility of Uriah is the thing that would get him killed. After one more attempt where David brings him to the palace and gets him crazy drunk, still Uriah refuses to go to his home. So David sends Uriah back to the war, carrying in his hand in the form of a letter to Joab his own death sentence. And Joab does what King David says. He puts Uriah on the front lines, and then he pulls everyone else back and... What do you know? Uriah dies in the battle. Bathsheba mourns the prescribed length of days, and then David, in an act of kindness to the widow of a fallen hero, takes her into his home as his wife. What a guy, right? Does this story displease you? Well, if it does, you aren't alone. 2 Samuel 11, verse 26, when Uriah's wife heard that her husband was dead, she mourned for him. After the time of mourning was over, David had her brought to his house, and she became his wife and bore him a son. But the thing David had done displeased the Lord. Which brings us to the real point I want to make today, the lesson I believe Scripture has for us for today. 
And, and the key to it is found in the very first part of the next chapter. 2 Samuel 12, verse 1. After it says the Lord was displeased, then here is what the Lord does. It says, the Lord sent Nathan to David. All right, now I just want to pause right there because we've been, we've been looking through uh, different relational hub diagrams. So I want to walk us through this again just to get us in our minds there. And, then, and you see David in the middle there. That's a star of David. Pretty good, right? Yeah, I came up with that all by myself. Yeah, I didn't just do a circle. I did a star of David. I thought that was good. All right. So that's David right there. David has all kinds of stuff. David's got wives, Michael, Ahinoam, Abigail, Mekah, Haggith, Abital, Eglah, and then it says after he got to Jerusalem, he had more wives, and then there were concubines as well. So not short on wives. David's got all kinds of officials. He's got Joab, he's got Jehoshaphat, he's got Zadok, he's got Ahimelech, he's got Sariah, he's got Benaiah, he's got David's sons. They, they serve as princes in the realm. And then David has mighty men. Wouldn't you love to have mighty men? I mean, that's just awesome. And he's got all these mighty men among whom, if you go down and read through the list, one of them is named Uriah the Hittite, one of the mighty men. All right, so, so here's how the story played out. So we've got Uriah and Bathsheba, and, and the Bible doesn't give us detail here, but we don't have any reason to believe that there wasn't a good relationship. Uh, I would assume they had a good marriage. And then you have Uriah who has a willing-to-die loyalty to David. But then you have David who has a wandering eye. So what does that lead to? Well, it leads to Uriah being gone. It leads to the trust Uriah had in David being broken. And it leads to Bathsheba no longer married to her husband. And I don't know what the relationship was between Bathsheba and David. I don't know if, if she was on board or not. It doesn't say but now she's forced into a new thing. But there's another person in David's relational hub, a man by the name of Nathan. And this Nathan is identified as a prophet, and he appears a couple chapters before in the story, and he's been with David, and, and from what we can tell, they are relationally close. After all of this, Bathsheba and David are married, a child is born, and it is at that point that the Lord sends Nathan, someone in David's relational hub, to David with a message. Now, don't let this be lost on you. Sometimes God sends his messages to us through the people in our relational hubs. But the question is, how well do you receive counsel from the people you love. Remember, I told you it might get a little awkward with the one you're sitting next to here. 2 Samuel 12, verse 1, the Lord sent Nathan to David. When he came to him, he said, there were two men in a certain town, one rich and the other poor. The rich man had a very large number of sheep and cattle, but the poor man had nothing except one little ewe lamb he had bought. He raised it, and it grew up with him and his children. It shared his food, drank from his cup, and even slept in his arms. It was like a daughter to him. 
Now a traveler came to the rich man, but the rich man refrained from taking one of his own sheep or cattle to prepare a meal for the traveler who had come to him. Instead, he took the ewe lamb that belonged to the poor man and prepared it for the one who had come to him. David burned with anger against the man and said to Nathan, as surely as the Lord lives, the man who did this must die. He must pay for that lamb four times over because he did such a thing and had no pity. Then Nathan said to David, you are the man. All right, two questions we need to ask ourselves as we head towards the close here today. Number one, sometimes God will send you to deliver a bold rebuke to someone you love. When he does, do you do it? So that's the first thing to ponder. Now the second is this. Sometimes God will send someone you love to you with a bold rebuke. When he does, do you listen? So now let's consider that first question. Let's, let's take this on. Nathan the prophet had every reason in the world not to call David out on this because apparently he'd gotten away with it. And David had already demonstrated he was willing to kill to keep this thing secret. Yet Nathan, a man I believe truly loved David, delivered the rebuke faithfully, fully aware that it could cost him his privileged position with the king or even his life. If you would truly love the people you love, sometimes you have to tell them the truth, even if it hurts. Which links us back to what I said before about if you have broken up a marriage by enticing someone away from their spouse, you need to repent. This is me speaking a somewhat bold word to you. And I say somewhat bold because I don't know who I might be talking to, and there isn't really a huge relational risk for me in this. Maybe the biggest risk here is, is uh, someone might have been offended so badly that at least for the moment they're considering never coming back here again as long as I'm pastor. That, that might be the worst of the risk I take in saying something like that. But if you and I were close my risk would be bigger, wouldn't it? To the larger point, if you would truly love the people you love, sometimes you have to tell them the truth even if it hurts. Now, don't misunderstand. I'm not giving you license to be a jerk and then just run around spouting off about everything everyone else does that makes you unhappy. And maybe in that is the check some of us need to not be over-aggressive with this concept of speaking truth. If the so-called truth you are speaking is more about you than it is about the person you are rebuking, then probably that rebuke does not need to be given. If your only issue is you don't like it, if that's the best you can do, I hate it when you do that. Okay, maybe that's a you thing. But if you have conviction in your heart that the Holy Spirit has sent you to speak a word, that's different. 
Perhaps this is a good check as well. If it doesn't actually frighten you somewhat to say what you believe God is asking you to say, then you probably aren't close enough to the person to say it because you don't actually have anything to lose. And in that case, I would suggest it probably isn't God calling you to speak, but probably something else calling you to speak. So in these caveats, I've attempted to address the possibility for abuse regarding what I'm saying. But now let me get back to the actual point. You cannot properly love the people you love if you won't tell them the truth when they need to hear it. Proverbs 27, verse 9. Perfume and incense bring joy to the heart, and the pleasantness of a friend springs from their heartfelt advice. The richest reward from a friend is not the way they go along with everything you want to do and never cause you a problem. That's not a real friend. The richness of a friendship is that a true friend will tell you the truth when you need to hear it. A true friend will be a truth teller to the people they love. Or as Proverbs says, 28, 23, Whoever rebukes a person will in the end gain favor rather than the one who has a flattering tongue. You think by just saying nice little platitudes all the time you're going to build a real relationship? No, you're not. Truth-telling builds true relationships. Okay, so that's the answer to the first closing question. Sometimes God will send you to deliver a bold rebuke to someone you love. When He does, do you do it? And here's the answer. A true friend will be a truth teller to the people they love. You need to be a truth teller to the people you're sitting with right now. But now on to the second question. Sometimes God will send someone you love to you with a bold rebuke. When He does, do you listen? This is a tough one, isn't it? Especially in the day where no one can tell me anything, right? It's always… So I got examples here. Here, Here's the answers if you need them. That's none of your business what I do. Don't you judge me. Oh, you're being insensitive. You just don't understand. Why are you so mean? I want you to notice something about these answers that are given way too often when someone tells truth. None of these answers, with the possible exception of the fourth one there, actually signals a willingness to address the issue being brought up, right? They're all blocks. I'm not going to talk to you about that. You got no right to tell me that. These are shutdown phrases. And they get us nowhere in our relationships. There are Bible texts that talk about this, but there's a chance you're not going to like them very well. Proverbs 25, verse 12, like an earring of gold or an ornament of fine gold is the rebuke of a wise judge to a listening ear. Having gold's a good thing, right? Well, according to this proverb, having a wise judge who can rebuke you when you're wrong is as valuable to you as gold. Proverbs 17.10, a rebuke impresses a discerning person, 
more than a hundred lashes a fool. Now, don't assume that because I know these things to be true that I always respond well when confronted or rebuked by the ones I love. And if you're all real quiet right now and listen very carefully, I think you'll be able to hear Alicia amening from home. (laughs) Yeah, I think I heard it. Sometimes I'd rather take a hundred lashes and continue in my folly. But that's because sometimes I'm a fool. And because that is true of me, sometimes those who come to me find themselves on the negative side of this next-to-last proverb for today. Proverbs 9, 7, and 8. Whoever corrects a mocker invites insults. Yeah, I've done that. Whoever rebukes the wicked incurs abuse. Yeah, I've done that. Do not rebuke mockers or they will hate you. Rebuke the wise, and they will love you. Here's the deal. I want to be wise. Which brings us to the last proverb for today, Proverbs 19.20. Listen to advice and accept discipline, and at the end you will be counted among the wise. Do you want to be wise? Listen to the people who love you who bring things to you even if you don't want to hear them because that's how you become wise. If you can believe the people you love want your life to be good and if they will be truth tellers, then you must be willing to listen when they tell you the truth. It's what David was willing to do. Nathan finished his rebuke, and then this happened. 2 Samuel 12, verse 13. Then David said to Nathan, I have sinned against the Lord. When you listen to the rebuke and realize that the one you love is right, there is only one right thing you can do, and that is repent. Ask God to give you eyes that see. No sin in your life is worth your relationship with God. And God will send you a righteous friend. Whenever you're starting to go too far, God will send someone from your relational hub to you as a messenger from the Lord in order to open your eyes. He will send you someone that you love because He loves you. And when your Nathan comes, listen, because God is trying to help you. Let's pray. Father in heaven, there aren't any of us that love to be rebuked. But the Proverbs teach us that this is the way to wisdom because we're all full of folly and we can't see the things that are killing us sometimes. And so you've given us these relationships, these people that we love, and sometimes they're given a very heavy message that they need to bring to us Lord, help us not to make it so unpleasant that they can't speak the word we need to hear. 
And Lord, on the other hand, when we are the one sent to say a hard thing, Lord, fill us with grace. May our hearts only speak those words from love and give us patience to deal with the one we love even when they aren't ready to hear. May we not become for them a broken record, but rather a presence, a loving presence that is a reminder that it is the Lord that reaches out to them. Lord, if we would have a mouth that spoke according to Your will and ears that heard according to Your purpose, then I think we'd be all right. So grant us these blessings so that we might truly love the people we love. In Jesus' name, amen.